God's got a, a third act, and it's a it's a big, you know, ta-da! This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater. I'm Peter Elliott in Vancouver, and hello, Nathan. Hi, I'm Nathan. I'm in Portland. We're going to talk about a, f- a flop and a hit today. Right. We've uh, we've been tracing the trajectory of the career of the the late great Stephen Sondheim, who died not too long ago at the age of 91. An incredible run this man had. Talked about his first two uh, Broadway sh- shows that made it to the Broadway stage: West Side Story and Gypsy. Two uh, certainly critical successes, and to a certain degree, commercial successes. Both shows made money. Yep. Um, Apparently, Oscar Hammerstein, Stonheim's great father figure slash mentor, had a conversation with, I forget who, Arthur Lawrence, somebody, after Gypsy, and said, yep, what will really, uh, they were talking about Steve's career, and he said, you know, what this young man needs, I think Steve's only barely 30 at this point, what he really needs is a flop, and then he'll have arrived. Well, (laughs) today we get to the flop, Sondheim's first and probably most notorious flop, Anyone Can Whistle, preceded by his most commercially successful show, uh, a show that I don't know particularly well, but uh, it is beloved of of some anyway. A funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, which is what, 1960? 1962. And yeah, his, his big commercial success. Um, over a thousand performances in its first incarnation on the great uh, on the great Broadway, and then um, uh, revived numerous times with uh, a star turn for Whoopi Goldberg and Nathan mm-hmm. Lane and Produced across North America and probably in English-speaking Europe as well by amateur and professional community theaters, mm-hmm. universities. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of high, high schools, schools and universities do forum. Yeah. yeah, which I mean, at one level, it's it's kind of a strange show for a high school. I mean, maybe we maybe we'll talk about this. It's it's a sex comedy. It's a <laughs> sex comedy, and it's based on. I think we there's all sorts of pieces. What I find fascinating about forum is there are all sorts of pieces that 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 are within Forum that uh, Sondheim developed so much more over the trajectory of his career. It's the first time Broadway uh, hears his tunes. He was the lyricist for West Side Story and for Gypsy, but now he's writing music and lyrics and introducing this, you know, Julie Stein in Gypsy... Uh, wrote pretty conventional pop songs. Now we hear his, now in Forum and certainly in Whistle as well, we hear his unique, fabulous, in my view, musical style, his signature. It's slightly dissonant. It's the lyrics uh, work really well with the music because he's writing both. It's tuny, but... I can imagine, I mean, I was thinking as I was listening to Forum uh, the other day, you know, when when uh, Bizet, Bizet's Carmen opened in Paris, the critics hated it because they couldn't understand the tunes. Uh, they thought it was dissonant. They thought it was jarring. And I would think both Whistle and Forum were pretty hard for people to tune their ears to. Here's a very uh, unique distinctive musical voice that he's introducing onto the Broadway stage and does it in a sex comedy. Yeah. He, he talks about Sondheim talks about um, forum was in some ways uh, an experiment for him. He had been taught famously by Oscar Hammerstein to write Hammersteinian shows and, and more to the point Hammersteinian songs, right? Hammerstein famously thought of, of every song in a musical a theater piece as a kind of little mini one-act play, right? It started somewhere, went somewhere, both musically and dramatically, and then finished in a different place. A, a song, you know, sort of traced the art. I mean, Rose's Turn from Gypsy is a great example, right? Like, it is a it is a little one-act play in a solo. Um, and Sondheim said, that's kind of what I knew how to do. That's what Oscar did well. 
and that that whole idiom had transformed the Broadway. You know, that that's what everybody was doing were these very dramatic moments. He said musical theater had kind of lost the. You know, it used to be called musical comedy, right. and he says the comedy bit had kind of gotten bypassed. Um, so in some ways, forum is an attempt to resuscitate musical comedy, right? To do Sondheim says I kind of wanted to do music the way that Cole Porter or Irving Berlin or E. Y. Harburg, you know, these kind of famous, very witty, very clever, but none of those songs are trying to uh, do anything dramatically, right? right. He, he talks about how uh, Bert Shovelove, the, the kind of collaborator on the piece, said, you know, the way that songs function in a farce is they allow you to savor a moment. They don't have to go anywhere. They don't have to push the plot along. They just allow us to take a breath as an audience from laughing hysterically uh, to relish something, and then we move on into more into more jokes, into more gags. So that's, in some ways, that's what Forum, I think, is trying to do, to create some musical moments of... Uh, of uh, of gap and air and relishing in the context of a very clever, very witty, uh, sort of pratfall, plot-heavy farce. Yeah. And um, the, the, you want to you, you try to describe the plot of No, of I do not okay. want to. We're not going to do that. We're not even going to do it. I think the another interesting thing about both Whistle, Forum and Whistle, is we get these two approaches that Sondheim takes to musical theater in terms of source material. With Forum... It's unlikely source material. Plautus, uh, Rome, uh, a Roman playwright from antiquity, and with uh, Larry Gelbert uh, and Bert Shevelov. Uh, Gelbert, who later went on to create MASH on TV and the movie Tootsie and so forth, they, they bring this material to life. And, and what, it's, uh, what it foreshadows, I think, for Sondheim is going to unlikely places to find material to treat in musical theater, whether that's the Bergman film, that's the uh, inspiration for uh, Little Night Music, or the psychology that's the background for Into the Woods, or probably, you know, the sine qua non, um, Sweeney Todd going back to uh, Victorian horror. So we get this one part of Sondheim, which goes to very unlikely unusual material as source material for a musical for musical theater the other place uh, anyone can whistle is creating something brand new which he did then with company um and in in several other pieces uh sunday in the park sunday in the park yeah yeah. but uh, yeah the unlikely source material uh, seems to be a theme these two shows a hit uh funny thing uh miss anyone can whistle Although I think you and I would agree that anyone can whistle is probably more interesting than certainly, yeah, thing. certainly theologically, yeah. We, we, there's more to talk about with whistle, yeah. But I think that is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I I feel like Sondheim's critique, in a certain way, of both shows is both Forum and Whistle were way too clever for their own good, and some of that I think speaks to your uh, your meditation on source material, right? There, there's a certain degree to which he's showing off a little bit, yeah. right? I can take I can take uh, whatever Plautus is, fourth century Roman playwright. Right. I can take uh, a painting that's hanging in the Art Institute of Chicago. I can take Victorian penny dreadfuls, and I can make a music. L- look what I can do. Look what I can do, Ma. Uh, yeah. There's a little bit of, I mean, and, and this is still young Sondheim here. So, you know, and uh, and, he, and he says whistles sort of the same thing, right? He and Arthur Lawrence kind of trying to do something that was very satirical, very uh, brittle, very caustic in a certain kind of way. It was a send up of, you know, late 50s, early 60s conformity culture in a very heavy hitting sort of way. Um, and I think, you know, Forum 2 trying to do sex comedy uh, on stage, you know, there's there's a lot of cleverness in these shows. And I think Sondheim would say they also don't work particularly well uh, because the cleverness gets in the way yeah. of um, of any sort of anything beyond, oh, isn't that funny? Oh, isn't that clever? Oh, are, don't, aren't these guys so well-read and so well-informed? Aren't they doing something so interesting? Yeah. So Forum, and we are not going to try to summarize the plot, and maybe just a word of advice. I watched uh, the 1965 film by Richard Lester of this and a personal opinion, it's terrible. And if you are inclined to learn about forum by watching the movie, uh, don't, they cut out more than half the songs. It's really not a musical anymore. It's um, anyway, but when Thomas and I finished watching it, I said, I don't think this would pass the Bechtel test. Uh, It is the depiction of women is derogatory. It's embarrassing. They are either 
prostitutes or sex objects of one type or another or mm-hmm. um, punishing shrews. There's yeah. very little dialogue given to any women at all. It's a male-oriented women as object uh, sex comedy that I guess if you do it ironically in the 21st century, maybe, but I'm not maybe. sure what place it has on the stages of community theaters, high sc- certainly high, not high schools, I wouldn't think, unless you maybe cross-cast, as they did on Broadway, Pseudolus, the main character, yeah. and put in Whoopi Goldberg, uh, and you were, think you'd listen to her uh, her version of of the uh, of free yeah, yeah. and which does it. which yeah. does shifts the I, I mean I mean nothing deliberate right the free is is there again it's pure comedy right it's uh, you know isn't isn't this funny the slave uh, aspiring to and all of you know the 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 fantasies that Pseudolus sketches out in free are you know kind of what bourgeois sorts of you know there's there's no real attempt to explore ideas of captivity, enslavement, and freedom in the song Free. But when Whoopi Goldberg sings it as a black woman, it reads very differently, even though it's still, you know, it's still clever and funny. It does, I think, become a really kind of a a slightly different, I don't know, there's something potentially much more interesting about Pseudolus. In some ways, Pseudolus is, I think, the only real character in Forum who really gets an I want song or anything like a dramatic, I mean, in, in, in other words, every other character is, is one dimensional. They're complete, they're, they're scenery to hang a, a comedy plot on. Uh, right. There's a, you know, there's a dim-witted hero, uh, a kind of uh, blonde bombshell who's very innocent. There's dirty old man, the woman he's married to who longs for him and is frustrated by, it. but they're all, they're all just complete comic stereotypes. But Pseudolus has at least a desire that's motivating him through the piece. And it's freedom, right? I mean, he wants to, he wants to be uh, a, no longer an enslaved tool. And when that role is played by Whoopi Goldberg, there's something interesting happening to me anyway there. Yeah, and he breaks the, I mean, mainly, maybe, maybe it's because Pseudolus was originally created by Zero Mostel, who went sure. on to create Tevye on mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, right after Broadway. Forum. This is sort of, yeah. this is Mustel's audition, we might say, for Fiddler on the Roof. And yeah. in, in some ways, uh, they're similar kind of characters. In They yeah. break the fourth wall, they address the audience. Zero Mustel, of course, mugs for the camera, uh, plays, plays for laughs. But, but they're, and similar to Fiddler on the Roof, funny thing uh, has a, uh, a really difficult time trying to figure out what it is until they get the first song right. Yeah, I was thinking about, and they're both Jerry Robbins creations, right? Both so Jerry, Jerry Robbins, Robbins, the the uh, the choreographer, director of both West Side Story and Gypsy, who he's kind of part of the right Sondheim's building his little what do we call it the the Stephen Sondheim coterie of creators, right? So yep. he and Arthur Lawrence work together throughout this period. He and Jerome Robbins are working together, and they they bring Jerry Ro- Robbins into Forum. He's excited by it. Ultimately, doesn't end up doing it, but they bring him back kind of as a hail mary pass at the last minute. The show's in yep. out of town in tryouts, and so we need we need to fix the opening number so jerry robbins kind of as he does with fiddler on the roof right like exactly. sits down, what is what is the show about tell me what this show's about and they give him all these kind of fan well it's about you know no 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 no, no. this is a comedy robbins said if, if you don't if you don't telegraph that to the audience right away nobody's gonna you know nobody's gonna understand what you're doing so basically creates out of whole cloth comedy tonight which he then turns around and does with fiddler on the roof you know i think about a year later as tradition yeah, exactly. What is a show about? And they, oh, well, it's about a guy and a daughter, and there's all these, you know, he's like, no, 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 no. This show is about tradition. You have to say it in the opening number. So Jerry Robbins creates, I mean, we might say two of the greatest opening numbers in the Broadway tradition in the space of about a year, I think. Yeah. Comedy Tonight and Tradition. And it's so interesting. They're both Zero Mistel shows. And I think to think about Pseudolus and Tevya as... What, what, what might we say, kind of bookends of a similar kind of, right? Like, Pseudolus yeah. has got a little bit of Tevye's sensibilities. Absolutely. Put, uh, and he's longing for something in the same way that Tevye is, too, right? Like, it's not just a comic character. There's a heart to this person. Um, and I love that you get a little bit, of, in free, you get a little bit of a sense of what makes Pseudolus tick. Certainly when it's Zero Mistel playing yeah. him. Can you see me as a poet writing poetry? All my verse will be free. A museum will have me pickled for posterity Can you see me? I can see you Can you see me as a lover, one of great renown Women falling down Free? No, but I'll buy the house of Lycus for my house in town Can you see me? Can you see me? 
Be you anything from king to baker of cakes You're a vegetable unless you're free It's a little word but oh the difference it makes It's the necessary essence of democracy It's the thing that every slave should have the right to be And I soon will have the right to buy a slave for me Can you see him? Well I'll free him When a pseudolist can move The universe shakes But I'll never move until I'm free Such a little word but oh the difference it makes I'll be pseudolist the founder of a family I'll be pseudolist the pillar of society I'll be pseudolist a man if I can only be Free Sing it Free Spell it F-R-double Know the long way F-R-E-E And I think, you know, not that this is uh, the gospel per se, or is it, the whole notion of being clear about intention, just for any clergy or folks who have to preach or give any kind of address of any type, that whole opening moment of a liturgy, of a sermon, of an address, what's this about? is a question that keeps coming. Jerry Robbins' question comes back to me over and over again whenever I have to make a public presentation. You know, what are you talking about? Or, you know, as uh, one of my friends, you know, what's your point? What yeah. is, how can you connect with your audience, your congregation, whatever, quickly so they know, they know what it is you're on about? I think Jerry Robbins' Uh, a- absolutely for for purposes of drama and theater, saying what you're about early on, absolutely key. But I think it is a transferable bit of wisdom mm-hmm. in all sorts of arenas of life. Yeah, you think about the opening, the famous opening of the gospel according to St. John, right? In yeah. the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... I mean, that's an opening number. Oh, boy. It's it's a Jerome Robbins-level opening. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, the writer of the gospel according to John knew what he was doing. Jerome Robbins would be so proud of this guy. He telegraphs... I mean, the, the and, you know, there's theological, right? Like, this whole gospel, this whole way of articulating the life of Jesus Christ is going to be about an incarnate Word... Right. So this is not Jesus as a human being. Right. Like where we're interested in his suffering and his human failability. This is Christ as a div. I mean, you know, very much. A imbo- I mean, Jesus talks for pages, paragraphs in the Gospel of John. All of that's telegraphed for you right at the outset. Right. The Gospel of John tells you right away. This is what this story is going to be about. It's different than the other Gospels. Um, this writer has a particular kind of theatrical agenda, we might say, and telegraphs it beautifully. It's a great opening number. Well, and I think the opening number, I mean, the opening number of uh, Fiddler, uh, the opening number of Ragtime, and the yeah. opening number of Forum for me are three of the great moments in musical three of the theater. Greatest. Um, yeah. And Forum was the first to do it, and I kind of love it also that it wasn't that ever that uh, Comedy Tonight came late in the putting together of the show because it's not obvious that you have to let the audience in on what you're doing in a pretty blatant way from the get-go. Uh, mm-hmm. So so comedy tonight, and it's a great song. It is. It is. It's a great number. It's a great yeah, number. It holds up really well. Yeah, great for cabaret shows. Great for, I mean, it can be excerpted in a gazillion different ways. And we rewrote parts of it at Trinity Cathedral once for the opening of a, of a cabaret yeah. performance. That's, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty versatile. Something for everybody. Comedy tonight. Nothing that's grim. Nothing that's Greek. She plays Medea later this week. Stunning surprises. Cunning disguises. Hundreds of actors out of sight. Pantaloons and tunics. Quartersons and eunuchs. Funerals and chases. Baritones and basses. Panderers. Philanderers. Cupidity. Timidity. Mistakes. Rings. Rhymes. Rhymes. Tumblers, grumblers, bumblers, fumblers. The royal curse. No Trojan horse. 
then the only other two songs I'm kind of keen about from uh, from Forum are both ones that, well, let's do, let, let's talk first about uh, Everybody Ought to Have a Maid, which is done by theater groups, by in cabarets, all that sort of stuff. It's pure vaudeville. It's pure burlesque. It's even, I'd like to suggest, slightly Gilbert and Sullivan-esque with its one of the things that Gilbert and Sullivan loved doing was creating a song that would have an encore that you would repeat because the audience loved it so much. And Everybody Ought to Have a Maid builds that into the very structure of the song. It finishes, there's applause, and then because the actors are hams, they start it up again. <laughs> they go into another chorus. And then yeah. they go into another chorus. And it's it's just kind of fun that way. But it's bourgeois, it's sexist, it's women well, it's, doing it's work. Well, it's a song about, it's sexual harassment. I mean, that's the thing about everybody. You know, it's like, it's one of these things where it's like, oh, isn't that clever? Isn't that cute? No, that's employers leching after women who they pay. Like, that's that's Harvey Weinstein. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, we're, we're, we're so far beyond the Bechtel test at this point. It's like, we're talking, we're singing about sexual harassment in the workplace here. Like, it's, um yeah, I that song... I like the song a lot, and it makes me really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. Like I, as, as, as you say, like, I just don't, I don't understand how you do that, how you do what they're trying to do in that song anymore. It's not funny. No. Old men leching after young women whom they're paying is not funny. No. Um, and I think that, yeah, in some ways, like, that, that song may have been killed by the 21st century. Maybe, I don't know what, you know, like, I don't know what art, art has a life beyond a particular moment. So maybe when I'm 80, I'll see a production of Forum and I'll rediscover that there's actually something there. But at, from where I'm sitting right now in 2022, I'm sorry. And what ha- just... But what happens when Whoopi Goldberg is pseudolus? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Although Whippy Goldberg lusting after women and her employees is no better than Harvey <laughs> Weinstein. It's still sexual harassment. Like, I don't, yeah. A maid? A maid! A maid! A maid! Everybody ought to have a maid. Someone who's efficient and reliable, obedient and pliable, and quieter than the mouse. Oh, Oh, wouldn't she be so nimble, fiddling with a thimble, mending a gown? Oh, oh, wouldn't she be delightful, cleaning up, leaning down? Oops, everybody ought to have a maid. Someone who'll be busy as a bumblebee, and even if you grumble, be as graceful as a grouse. Wriggling in the anteroom. Jiggling in the dining room. Jiggling in the living room. Wiggling in the other rooms. Pottering all around. The house. The house. The house. The house. And then there's pretty little pictures. Um, Sondheim admitted two things about this song. Number one is that it's one of his most favorite lyrics. And number two is that it's totally wrong for the show. It, it really doesn't belong. It doesn't really advance the plot at all. But what I want to just notice about it is this extraordinary, well, the lyrics are, the wordplay here is amazing. It's quick, wrapping your lips around if you're the singer, the performer who has to sing this, uh, and Zero Mostel does a great job working his way through it, uh, is extremely difficult. And the tune is all over the place. This is back to what we were I was talking about earlier about this gentle kind of dissonance I wanna it's mm-hmm. not exactly it's not a it's it, you know it's it's not Stravinsky, but he's picked up some tricks from Bernstein. It's always sounds a little off key and resolves in all sorts of interesting ways. Strangely for me, Pretty Little Pictures is a complete earworm. It's a pretty little picture to share as a little boat sails to sea. Take a little trip free as air. Have a little freedom on me. No worries, no bothers, no captains, no fathers. Ocean and island waits, smooth and sandy and pink. 
filled with lemons and nuts and dates. Pretty little picture. Think in a cottage of cypress trees, seashells dotting the door. Boy and bride live a life of ease, doing nothing but what they please. And every night when the stars appear, there's nothing more to see or hear, just the shore where the lovers lie. The sand and the sea and the stars and the sky. And the sound of a soft little satisfied sigh. All of your petty little problems will cease, and your little blessings will flow. And a little family increase. Pretty little picture. No, no. Pretty little masterpiece. Pretty little picture. It is a earworm. I, I, I find that, and actually, maybe this is our, our bridge to Anyone Can Whistle. I think that Everybody Says Don't is an earworm yes. in the same way. Both of them are da 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 It's a catchy rhythmic device. da 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 which is pretty little picture. Pretty little da-da-da-da-da. It's the same little, what do you even call that? I don't know. It's a little It's a little ditty. There's a dittiness to it that is very hummable, very catchy, and to your point, really sticks in your craw. Yeah. Some of that, I think it's it's just really good. It's fast, quick writing that is actually very memorable. It's a way of getting a lot of words into a very memorable little snippet. Uh, and Sondheim does that remarkably well. I think it's one of his greatest gifts as a songwriter. All your petty little problems will cease and our little blessings will flow. One of the mm-hmm. few times we actually hear a kind of uh, liturgical, theological bit of phrase from Stephen Sondheim, or are there more? Oh, that depends on how broadly you want to, yeah. I, uh, certainly for the for funny thing happened to the way of the forum, not a lot of um, theological material in this in this, uh, in this show. Although maybe maybe we want to flag this and come back to it. I, I think it is interesting to think about um, the, the theological uh, place that comedy uh, plays in both in the scriptural tradition, um, but I think even more so in, in what, what theological sense do we make? Of, of laughter, of pure entertainment at one level, right? I can, I can think, you know, like laughter, comedy, entertainment is a piece of being human. So it's a piece of how the revelation of the human being as a revelation. Of, I mean, there is, there is laughter in God. I think about scriptural stories where, you know, Sarah famously laughs when God says you're going to have a baby. God punishes her for it. But, there, but early in the Hebrew tradition, I think is the, the kind of the theological idea that laughter is a doorway into divinity. I think that's a really interesting uh, think, think about a, a podcast about musical theater, musical comedy. What, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about human beings through, through comedy? I also think about, like, uh, I think it's Frederick Buechner who talks about the gospel is tragedy, the gospel is comedy, and the gospel is fairy tale. And actually, thinking about Sondheim's career, right? Tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. We're going to get to fairy tale. But I, as I remember it, Buechner's point about comedy is that the story of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection— in some ways, is, is an illustration of taking the scariest thing there is about being human, violence and death, and then God's great um, kind of gag at the end of it. Like, this is almost an absurdist humor, right? Like, death is, death is a joke. Violence is, um, you know, not, not to diminish it, but, like, that's not the final—that's not actually where the, where the meaning of the human condition might be found, we might say. Um, God's got a, a third act, and it's a it's a big you know ta da kind of sight gag at the end of it. Um, the resurrection is kind of a profound sort of farcical comedic moment, read in one particular way. Um, and I like that way of thinking about uh, how God works, right? That in some ways, like we might actually, if we're if we're going to look for theater pieces or musical pieces that give us a doorway into God, it's maybe not you know the darkest, dreariest, most theological Sweeney Todd with all of its meditation on Deus Irae and death and judgment. It might be something more like Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which is just purely for entertainment's sake. I'm thinking about, uh, I th- I, and I, I believe it was St. Augustine who said that the purpose of a sermon is to inspire, inform, and entertain and the notion of certainly humor well-placed as a way to convey the gospel has an effect of relaxing people into opening our eyes to new possibilities, to use the Tillichian phrase. Um, And I think there's something profound about humor that allows, it's disarming, 
putting away the sort of cares of the world, engaging in a sex uh, comedy in the case of Forum, while you're laughing, saying, oh my God, this is a terrible world that's being presented to us. People are enslaved, women aren't treated well, but we sort of get there sideways, you know? Told slant, as Emily Dickinson put it, right? Uh, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Um, tell it from a, a, a sideways point of view. And I think Sondheim, first and foremost, is an entertainer. There's been a kind of awe and reverence surrounding him uh, in his later years and particularly after his death. You know, everything this guy does is profound and it's deep and there's meaning, and, and I believe all that's true. But I also want to say, at, at sort of the, the one very important level, he was seeking to make commercial, successful theater that people wanted to see and that entertained them. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yep. Having, a, having an enjoyable night in the theater is a perfectly laudable goal, especially if you pay money and support the, <laughs> the careers of artists in order to do it. Yep. Exactly. And I think it was what he and Arthur Lawrence were trying to do in Anyone Can Whistle. Yeah, it's a time to shift to that one. So a, a very different conceit in some ways. Um, this, is, this is less farce and much more satire. Anyone Can Whistle is, a, is attempting yes. to pretty, um, I won't say darkly, but pretty, what, precisely, pretty uh, directly critique the culture yes. of the late 50s, the early 60s, conformity culture, we might say, right? There's a, there's a mental institution yes. at the heart of it. And the, the joke, quote unquote, of anyone can whistle is, of course, it's the, it's the inmates in the mental institution who are the most sane people in society. They mix with everybody else. And so what is revealed is that, you know, it's really the, it's the mayor, it's her team of government, it's church, it's everybody in authority. They're the crazy ones. Um, and it's these people who have, and we, we, you know, anyone can whistle in, in a certain way, I think is a little bit ahead of its time. You know, the, the, the yes. insane asylum folks have, are, are not um, mentally ill. They've chosen to opt out, right? They're, um, yes. I, I, I think this is pre-hippie culture, but that's kind of what's being suggested here, right? These are people who don't fit in to the, the, the world in the way that it's set up. And so have decided, like, we're not going to play that game anymore. We're dropping out. There's a little bit of racial elements there. There's definitely a lot of gendered expectations there, right? These are people who don't fit neatly into the the gender boxes of men and women. There's a little kind of, I don't know, my sense is a little bit of a sense of, oh, sexuality is a piece of this. But really, I mean, the, the show isn't isn't going there because, you know, it's, it's satire. It's farce. Um, this is not attempting to, you know, think through the philosophical, theological issues around conformity culture. It's just, you know, sending up authority uh, in some very, you know, I think Sondheim would say some very kind of juvenile ways, right? It's very in love with its own cleverness in terms of, you know, aren't we being devilish? The Broadway audiences are going to have no idea that we're skewing them, which actually right. turns out to be a pretty unsatisfactory experience as an audience member when you're, when you're vaguely aware that the creators of the show you're watching are laughing and making fun of you. Um, that actually doesn't work yeah. dramatically. And it... Seven performances, yeah, I think. Nine or after something like that. Yeah. Nine after in comparison to a thousand. Uh three acts. It's probably the last of the musicals to ever attempt a three act form. <laughs> Good riddance to, uh, to, the, to the three act musical, I think, but yeah. I mean, some of us may think that Les Mis should have been three yeah. acts just to give everybody a chance to get out of the theater, but th they were trying three acts. They were Boyd. I think they were uh, Lawrence, who with whom uh, Sondheim worked on Gypsy. I think they were Boyd by the success of it. They thought they could capitalize on their cleverness, too clever by half in so many ways. And yeah, 1964, uh, so just ahead of hippie culture, just ahead of the huge transformation that happened about 15 years later in mental hospitals mm -hmm. um, where they were emptied out all over North America because pharmaceuticals became much more available for people who were suffering with schizophrenia or any number of other uh, things from the diagnostic uh, tools of the psychiatrists. But they were anticipating, I think, something that did happen, which was what is mental illness who are the mentally ill? Are the right people in the asylums is kind of one of the questions they ask. And then 
right into our wheelhouse and really the only Sondheim show that explicitly deals with religion, the whole question of miracle and fraud, uh, the the fraudulent nature of so much of organized religion, Mm -hmm. the use of the miraculous um, in a fraudulent way to attract the public, the discovery of miracle, um, not so much in this rock that uh, from which water comes, which is right out of Hebrew scripture yep. um, imagery, Moses at the uh, striking the rock and water coming out, but this being a constructed thing. But at the end, there is a kind of miracle. Yeah, in some ways, I mean, anyone can whistle is a show about miracles. I mean, the, the plot is entirely uninteresting to me. I don't, I couldn't tell you what it's about. It's weird. Um, the characters, as I understand them, kind of through the music that Sondheim gives them, are interesting to me, right? You've got a mayor, mayoress is how they refer to her. A mayoress. Which is interesting. I just, I mean, you know, like there's not never really anything done with the fact that this is a woman in charge of a town. Uh, Angela Lansbury famously plays her in the, um, in the, uh, original Broadway company, basically a pure villain. Angela Lansbury says, I was completely wrong for the role because I wanted to give this woman some kind of heart. And, you know, Arthur Lawrence and Stephen Sondheim were completely uninterested in presenting any sort of dimensionality to this woman. So I think she really struggled in that role. Um, so you got, you know, but she's, you know, the image of just pure venality out to out to make a buck and doesn't care who she has to step over in order to make it. And then you've got this nurse, Faye, Faye Apple. Um, originally, interestingly, they wanted Barbara Streisand for that role. Arthur Lawrence had just finished directing her, and I can get it for you wholesale. And they kind of tried to court Barbara Streisand. I think she was she was going to be a kind of a Jewish character. I forget the original name, but it was not Faye Apple. It was something much more Jewish sounding. Uh, and Barbara Streisand decided to go with a, a, a very different show called Funny Girl that we might say made her career. So <laughs> good points for Barbara Streisand for making the correct career choice and avoiding uh, anyone can wish. Also, the role goes to Lee Remick, who uh, Sondheim later had a pretty intense uh, emotional romantic relationship with, after, I think after the show had closed. Um, but Faye, I think, is the most interesting character in the piece. Uh, a nurse in the insane asylum who has a, a love for her inmates. It's never really clear to me, like, what is she doing? Like, why is she involved in this thing? Because um, Faye presents as a woman of science, right? Her, her kind of famous opening monologue is, I don't believe in the miraculous. Uh, I believe in, you know, the, the, the miracles of man. I forget exactly what she says, but, you know, it's, it's, it's the wheel. It's, you know, m- m- uh, mankind, humankind's ingenuity. That's where I put my faith, in science and in human in- ingenuity. Cookie shoob, that's what my charges are. Cookies from the cookie jar. My name is Apple, A double P L E, a fruit well mentioned in the Bible, that bestseller of many miracles. I cite the Ten Commandments and then Burning Bush to mention only two or eleven, depending upon your arithmetic. Mine makes the mad up to zero because I personally am for the miracles of man, such as the wheel, the alphabet, and the pyramids of Egypt. Now, why do I want my cookies to take your waters? I'll tell you why. Because my cookies are people, Shub. They are human beings and they are to be treated as such and have the same rights as everyone else. So you both can bloody well let them dip into that leaking drain pipe. If you don't, I'm not saying I'll go to the police because I am no fool, nor will I go to the mayoress because she is, but this is a free town and a free county and a free state and a free country and I am a free woman with a free mouth. And if you say no to my cookies, I will open up that mouth and talk. And I am telling you here and now that when I talk, I talk long and loud. You know, she's the one who unmasks the miracle for what it is. She's the one who kind of releases the inmates of the insane asylum. But also a woman who struggles, I, I think, to put into practice in her own personal life the, um, the beliefs that, she, that are core to her in terms of her public life, right? So the, the title song, Anyone Can Whistle, which I don't think is that great of a song. Um, but the way that it is usually performed, I think, is as a woman, uh, a woman who is kind of in her head, right? A woman who uh, thinks very quickly, uh, believes very passionately, and has a, a deep vocation in, in the world, but can't connect it to her heart somehow, right? right. Uh, anyone right. can whistle, that's what they say, but can you teach me how to whistle is kind of what she asks by the end of the song, right? I can't, I can't yeah. make the music happen. I've got all the ideas. I can make the work happen. I can't make the music happen. 
and I, I love anyone can whistle as a song. Actually, I think it's a, I think it's a great song. It's one of, I think it's one of Sondheim's, one of Sondheim's greatest. And the, the line that of course, uh, I think resonates so much, like she wants to know how to whistle, but how do you, how do you teach somebody to whistle? But she knows what it is that she has to do, right? Is it about personal liberation, the, how to let go, how to lower your guard, how to learn to be free. If, if, you're, if you're trying to whistle and you don't let go, you don't lower your guard, it's going to be impossible to do it. There's something about the relaxation of performance and <laughs> all that sort of stuff. A friend of mine who's learned, who's been uh, taking uh, singing classes, uh, had to perform for the first time. She's an adult, uh, had always had a fear of singing in public, which was difficult because she's clergy and did a first performance and it was just awful. And her coach, she came back, you know, after crying ugly tears and all that sort of stuff. And they debriefed what had gone wrong. And he said, you need to find a song that you can own that and channel this experience to help you become a singer. And she chose anyone can oh, whistle. Interesting. And it's become sort of her her anthem for this personal growth that she has gone gone through. I can dance a tango. I can read Greek easy. I can slay a dragon any old week easy. What's hard is simple What's natural comes hard Maybe you could show me how to let go I I wonder whether one of the things that's going on for Sondheim, the lyricist here, probably unconsciously at the time, and you'd, you'd reference the relationship with Lee Remick, is he coming to terms with his sexuality? Mm-hmm. Is, is he needing someone to help him uh, let go, lower his guard, and learn to be free because I don't think he's feeling of course he isn't in 1964 as a gay man even in a community of gay men in New York which were legion because they were so many but um societal acceptance not quite no. there no and he, and he um, talks about this in, in his biography you know he said you know in the, in the mid-60s I knew four gay men Two of them were, were together. They were very effeminate. And he said, I, you know, we were all vaguely aware in the world of musical theater. And you, you, know, you think about his collaborators, right? Arthur Lawrence, Leonard Bernstein, Jerome Robbins, all of these are men who were at least bisexual. And he said, you know, we all kind of knew, but we never talked. Nobody talked about it. It was never openly discussed. Even, even I mean, the sense is even among ourselves, right? There's no, like, he and Arthur Lawrence aren't getting together over drinks. I mean, they are famously getting together over for drinks at the bar. Uh, when they were working with Richard Rogers on another piece, he apparently made all kinds of, you know, crude remarks about how he thought they were having an affair. They weren't. They weren't. I mean, you know, and they were not. I mean, more to your point, right? They were not able to be queer men together in the way that you and I are able to be together, right? We can we right. can talk we can right. talk about our lives. Uh, we can talk about some stuff in our lives that we probably don't talk about with our straight friends and our and our families, right? There is a kind of exactly. um, there there's a kind of and that I don't think that was available for Stephen Sondheim in the '60s. It was it, it was probably happening elsewhere, but I think he was terrified to a certain degree of his sexuality and what it what it meant. The, the ways in which he did and didn't fit into the world he wanted to fit into, which is the world of intellectual, sophisticated New York, but more particularly the world of Broadway um, and, and these creators who had, you know, people like Oscar Hammerstein, uh, Richard Rogers, you know, the, the people that he looked up to, the, the people in his own generation, Bernstein and Lawrence and, um, and then, you know, these yeah. younger folks coming up. I think, I think the, the sense was I, I cannot be that that I see 
so I've got to figure out something else. And and at that level, you know, he he Sondheim also famously says, you know, everybody thinks anyone can whistle is my autobiographical creed de corps. It's not. And then he goes on to say, the fact that I feel so irritated by this is itself probably something <laughs> interesting that I would I would I would yeah. do well to deal with with a therapist, right? Why do I get so defensive around people thinking that anyone can whistle is me? I I read that as at a certain level he's aware that there is something that he's channeling. Anyone can whistle. That's what they say. Easy. Anyone can whistle any old day. Easy. It's all so simple. Relax, let go, let fly. So someone tell me why can't I? I can dance a tango. I can read Greek easy. I can slay a dragon any old week easy. What's hard is simple. What's natural comes hard. Maybe you could show me how to let go, lower my guard, learn to be free. Maybe if you whistle, whistle for me. And I think because we know too much autobiography and whether he meant it as sure. his, his song or not doesn't really matter. But, you know, what's hard is simple, like writing uh, a show that went on to have a thousand, a thousand performances in, in forum or writing with Bernstein or writing for Merman. Those are pretty hard things. But for him, I think they it were easily. Yeah. simple, not, 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 not without difficulty. Um, what's natural is same-sex attraction comes hard, right? Uh, so that, just in those little... And whenever I hear those words sung, regardless of whether it's about sexual orientation or that sort of... I think he's caught a little bit of wisdom there that for when you have natural abilities, and I think all of us are gifted and have natural abilities in certain things, and people look at uh, at you and say, wow, that's amazing. How did you, how did you do that? And, and you know, you go... Actually, that wasn't hard at all. That, that's kind of what I do. But then other things that for many people come naturally <laughs> don't come easily to us. Like it's, I think it's such a human, I think it's a universal. I think it's a universal. Uh, and then the, the deep plea, you know, maybe you could show me a kind of call out to a mentor mm-hmm. or a lover, how to let go, lower my guard, learn to be free. Yeah. I it just brilliant, brilliant words deeply affecting yeah. words. Yeah, so does it take a... I mean, the show's about miracles, right? Faye says, I, I believe in... Mm. And, and then, at, you know, at the end, her lover, Hapgood, comes back to her in my favorite song from the piece, Everybody Says Don't, right? And sings to Faye, I believe in miracles if you do them, right? Yeah. Uh, miracles, nothing to them. That's Don't be afraid. That's kind of his, right? Like his kind of great galvanizing cry to this woman who has kind of shown him her heart, right? Can you teach me how to whistle? There's this thing that I cannot figure out how to do. And essentially what Hapgood says is very much what you're saying, right? Faye, like, let it go. Don't be afraid. It's your fear that's holding you back. And, it, and you know, yes, it might take a miracle for you to whistle. I believe in miracles, he says, if you do them, right? So in other words, like, yeah. it's not like sitting around on my butt praying for God to make me different. Please fix this thing about me, right? Like Hapgood's line is like, you're going to have to, like, you have power. You have agency. If you want to whistle, Right. You can do it. It might you know, might take what feels right. like a miracle, but you can make that miracle happen. Um, I think that's where the show finds its heart, I suppose, is that human human society, human beings together, we might say through the power of love, through the power of community, we make miracles happen, which is very different than the manufactured miracle, supposedly divine, uh, that Mayor Cora, you know, uh, manufactures in order to kind of put her town on the map. Um, there, there is a real miracle yeah. at the heart of anyone can whistle. It's Faye. It's her love for Hapgood. It's what happens to the two of them. 
uh, and the ways in which they're able to, I mean, I, I think the way that the story is supposed to go, the way that they're able to impact their society for better. Yeah. And I think the, the, I love that. And, and the, everybody says don't, um, I think opens up what Tillich, Tillich referred to the, Paul Tillich, the great theologian referred to the incarnation as God's new possibility, right? For possibilities to happen, for new possibilities to happen, you have to kind of get beyond the, I can't, it won't happen, don't do it. And that's how miracles happen. That's, I think there's the divine spark, if I can put it that way, that resides in, in souls that, I mean, it does, it's, not far, it's not a far leap for me to move from everybody says don't to Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, right? Everybody says don't. Everybody says don't fight racial discrimination. You're going to get beat up uh, to, to Dr. King and so forth. Uh, everybody says don't, but, but he believes in the new possibility in the miracle that taking initiative can, can bring mm-hmm. along. Yeah, there is a little bit of a, of a political, I mean, they're talking about whether or not they're going to take Mayor Cora on, right? So the song at a, at a very yeah. literal level is about, are we brave enough to take on the establishment? Um, and there are some, right, like the heads have good singing it, right? Like everybody says, can't fight City Hall, can't upset the cart, can't laugh at the king. Here's that power of comedy again, right? That the other the yes. other theological principle that I think comedy has in scripture is it's the thing that unmasks power. Right. And that's what Hapgood's talking yes. about. Right. Can't upset the cart. Can't laugh at the king. Then he says, well, I say try. I say laugh at the kings or they'll make you cry. Lose your poise. Fall if, to ha- if you have to. But lady, he's talking to Faye. Lady, make, make a noise. Um, you you got you yes. gotta shout, which actually, you know, Faye has talked earlier, she has a whole monologue about how if you try to shut me up, I talk long and I talk loud. So in some ways, like what <laughs> Hapgood, I think, is doing is reminding Faye, this is who you said you were. At the beginning of the night, when you introduced yourself to us as a character, you got to be that thing. Do, do it. it. Yeah, yeah, do the, do the yeah. thing that yeah. you said you're, you you actually already have the miracle inside you. Everything you need is all right there. Just, you know, your fear is the only thing that's getting in the way. And that's where he kind of pivots to miracles, right? I believe in miracles if you do them. I say don't be afraid. That's how the song ends. Um, it is, it is, yeah. a, I mean, at one level, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, kind of classic musical theater, incur- you know, like, hey, just don't be afraid, girl, and you can do anything, and, okay. Um, but I think musically, musically it works. Yeah, musically it really works, I think. Yeah. May just a ripple come on, be brave. This time a ripple, next time away. Sometimes you have to start small. Climbing the tiniest wall Maybe you're going to fall But it's better than not starting at all Everybody says no, everybody says stop Everybody says mustn't rock the boat Mustn't touch a thing Everybody says don't, everybody says wait Everybody says can't fight City Hall Can't upset the cart Can't laugh at the king Well I say try I say Laugh at the kings, all that make you cry Lose your poise Fall if you have to, but lady, make a noise Everybody says don't, everybody says can't Everybody says wait around for miracles That's the way the world is made I insist on miracles If you do them, miracles Nothing to them I say don't, don't be And it's a great example of a Sondheim song. Another friend of mine who was a, a Dominican priest and, as he put it, left the Roman Catholic Church in, in Canada and, elect, and adopted Elizabeth, embraced Elizabeth as his personal lord and queen uh, to become an Anglican. But he, say, uh, he began a whole career as a performer. And his vocal teacher, as a way to challenge him as a singer, what was the song that he had to learn? Uh, everybody says don't. And it took him over a year to learn it and feel confident about performing it because it's incredibly difficult. It's back to that rhythm thing that you mentioned with Pretty Little Picture. It goes in places you don't expect it to melodically. It was, it's, it's, a, it, it's one of Sondheim's greatest yeah, songs, I, I think. I agree. It's um, a great anthem. 
Yeah. yeah. It, and it functionally, it, I think, I mean, you know, it's not the show's, it's not technically the show's 11 o'clock number. I think it, it is or, or should be, right? If, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm redoing Anyone Can Whistle, which I would never try, um, I think that, that belongs <laughs> in the 11 o'clock slot. Um, that, I think, is yeah. the show's great kind of triumphant moment. Like, this is what we're trying to say with this material. Uh, in 1964, right, when, every, you know, and, and you think about Arthur Lawrence and Stephen Sondheim, two closeted gay, gay men who are, you know, reaching a, actually, a, a, you know, a, a certain kind of success in their career. Uh, that success comes at a cost, right? The, the spotlight is on them. They, they're, they're writing the song for a show that's going to flop notoriously. Everybody yeah. said don't, but they tried. And they fell on their faces. Yeah. But I think in some ways, like at that level, the song is a little bit about the creative process. We're going to fail at some stuff. Yes. And that can't be the thing that keeps us from trying to do this stuff that we really believe in. And one thing I love about Sondheim is he was unapologetic about Whistle. Yep. Even though it was a failure, he said, you know, I, I'm proud of what we attempted to do as a piece of absurdist theater, he referred to it. In, in commercial theater, that audiences didn't buy it, that it didn't work. I'm still proud of our attempt. Yeah. Don't be afraid, yeah. right? It's the end. Yeah. And it does contain Anyone Can Whistle, I think, amongst his greatest love duets. Yeah. Um, with so little to be sure of, which, you know, if the show, uh, I mean, the show will be attempted to be revived and workshopped and put in concert and that sort of stuff, but... These three songs that we've been talking about, anyone can whistle and everybody says don't, but especially with with so little to be sure of, just captures uh, a moment of intimacy between uh, lovers. It's a it's a fair it's a farewell song, isn't it? I mean, I think that's yeah. their, they think they think they're saying goodbye to one another. And I, I think it's Hapgood who starts it, right? Like, you know, with, with yeah. so little to be sure of, we know that what we had was real. I think that's what the song is, yeah. uh, is, is, is trying, trying to be about. Yeah. Um, I think they do actually end up together at the, end of the, at the end of the thing. But the song, I think, is a farewell song. And there is a sweetness to it, right? It's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful song about a relationship that was really significant for two people. And they're ready to say goodbye. Thanks for everything we did. Everything that's past, everything that's over too fast. None of it was wasted, all of it will last. Everything that's here and now and us together. It was marvelous to know you, and it isn't really Business, this, this life we live in Can't complain about the time we're given With so little to be sure of in this world We had a moment A marvelous moment Marvelous moment beautiful time I need you more than I can say I need you more than just today I guess I need you more than you need me and yet I'm happy your face if there's anything to be the more I never want to leave being sure enough of you made me sure enough of me come with me Faye. thanks for everything thanks for everything we did everything that's passed everything that's over too fast none of it was wasted yeah. all of it will last everything that's here and now and us together <laughs> I mean, these words are It's pretty They're, beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. It's pretty yeah. beautiful. And there's something, I don't know, I, maybe I, I, I want to be careful around psychologizing Sondheim's biography onto this stuff. I, we, we need to be really careful about that. There again, there is something so queer to me about that way of thinking about intimate partnership. Yeah. 
because you know this is you know especially in 1960 whatever this is 1964 right 64, none of yeah. none of these relationships that men are forming with other men or that women are forming with other women um, some of them actually do miraculously last but not because of any sort of social sanction or cohesion or any recognition from anybody and mostly these relationships are one night stands affairs uh hidden for sometimes decades Decades. And yeah. nothing about that furtive quality takes away any of the integrity and the realness uh, and the beauty that these people are creating. I, I don't know. Something about that song just feels to me so perfect for these two yeah. guys and what they're trying to do. Perfect and queer and also uh, deeply wise about the uh, the preciousness of every moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we say this. I've said it, I'm sure you have endlessly at funerals and memorial services, um, to grasp the to grasp the day, to tell the people that you love that you love them while they're still here. And and this song kind of encapsulates that embracing the moment. Uh a crazy business this this life we live in can't complain about the time we're given, which becomes prophetic in terms of the gay man's health crisis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with so little to be sure of in this world, we had a moment, a marvelous moment, and then ending um, with Hold Me, uh, the the intimacy that often comes at the end of a intimate relationship of 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 holding on to holding on to each other in the midst of this crazy world that we all have to navigate our way through Mm -hmm. it's a brilliant and heart i weep almost every time when i hear a this performed well Mm -hmm. tears just well up in my eyes and the melody is beautiful the words are profound the 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 sense of the fragility of relationship and of life and of the moments that we have is is just captured Mm -hmm. here isn't it interesting that sondheim's most successful love duets are to a certain degree tragic i think about somewhere with so little to be sure of i mean it's not quite tragic but moment in the woods from yeah. into the woods is what you know that also a song about a fleeting moment uh and that's more kind of one woman's meditation on what's just happened to her um but but his his yeah a lot of his most successful romantic music is tinged with this bittersweet quality that really i think is what makes it so affecting move on from sunday in the park with george yeah, yeah it's time to move on, you know? Uh, so yeah, the, there is this, and that is also deeply queer and deeply generational. Mm-hmm. I think he doesn't, he doesn't, in fact, he very deliberately doesn't do, they lived happily ever after. That is not Sondheim's story. He's not interested in telling that story. He is interested in directly undermining that story in into the woods, especially. But I think even throughout the rest of the stuff, you know, all of these are moments. These are love affairs that do not necessarily last. And that's what he's interested in, in bringing to the stage because there's such beauty in that, in yeah, as you say, in the transient quality, the the sacredness of the, I think about the sacrament of the present moment, yes. right? Who is it who who talks about right that like if you can't find God peeling carrots at the kitchen sink on a Saturday afternoon in January, <laughs> don't bother going to a monastery, yeah. right? Like God is in the little insignificant transient moments of an everyday life. That is incarnation. That's where the divine shows up. Um, and that's in some ways, I think, where, where Sondheim is interested in finding uh, divinity, if we're going to use a heightened term. Um, it's in those moments. And this is the implicit theology of grace that I hear over and over again in Sondheim. Unintentional. But what I, the reason I think it, it, it resonates so much for me anyway, uh, and I think for others, is he's, he's finding these moments of grace in the midst of the zeitgeist of the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, where the institutions are collapsing. The institution of marriage is now marked by divorce. The, the nuclear family, a few years after 1964, is blown apart with the youth revolution. The security of home and hearth is brought low with uh, civil rights movement, with the Vietnam War in Canada, with the French the Quebec uh, rest of Canada debate about French-English relations uh, with the the growing awareness of the tragedy of indigenous people and colonization and all these things. So he's, he, he's writing into and for this time of enormous cultural dislocation and finding these moments of 
celebrating, I should say, not finding, but celebrating the moments of love and connection that actually happen. Um, And that's where God is. Uh, God isn't in the great trajectory, but in the the moments, in the peeling carrots. With so little to be sure of. so little to be sure of. Right? With nothing in this world can you be sure. I mean, you know, certainly in the Connie Van Gogh whistle, right? The miracle at the center of the thing is completely manufactured. The the political system is corrupt. The religious system is corrupt. The mental health psychiatric system is corrupt. I mean, with so little to be sure of, we have this moment. These two people. He teaches her how to whistle, I guess. Um, Or at least for a moment, she's able to relax in his arms and be held. Um, yeah, there's something pretty beautiful about that. None of it was wasted. All of it will last. Everything that's here and now and us here and now, the here and now and us together, you know, I've been thinking maybe somewhat wistfully, and I'm sure you have as well as someone involved in parish ministry. It's almost like the pre-pandemic liturgical moments that we had seem now like a dream mm-hmm. with smaller congregations and the anxiety around singing and the, the fear of Omicron as we record this, which is sweeping across the world and so forth. I, when I think back onto a packed church on Christmas Eve with people unconsciously and unselfconsciously packed in, breathing all over each other, coughing all over each other, and that was just normal. With so little to be sure of, you know, this this time, I think it's a song really, really for, for our time, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Whistle and Forum, there whistle we go. Whistle and Forum, yep. So, next week we turn, I think, to um, the great kind of pivot into the 1970s, which I, I, I want to suggest is really actually a show about the 60s, but that's okay. We'll, I think you're right. I don't disagree. Yeah. So but we it's get a to, great show. Oh, probably, yeah. Maybe, I don't know if I would call Company my favorite Sondheim show. It might be. It's certainly one of my top five, though. Um, Me too. I suspect for you. Yeah, exactly. So lots to, lots to talk about with Company. I can hardly wait. Cool. Until See next that. time. The Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.